You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Robert W. Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 23, Company, and with us today is the author of that chapter, Rick Pender. From 2004 to 2016, Rick uh, edited the Sondheim Review, one of my favorite magazines. Uh, In 2017, he launched everything, Sondheim.org. His book, please get this book, the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia, was published in 2021. He has written about theater for Cincinnati City Beat since it began publishing in 1994, and he was the paper artists uh, arts and entertainment editor from 1998 until 2006 ohio society of professional journalists recognized him uh, as the state's best arts critic in 2002 and 2017 he's contributed theater interviews to public radio station wvxu's weekly arts magazine for 15 years and he is a past chair of the american theater critics association rick i am so excited that you're with us here today to talk about Company. So my first question for you, Rick, is what makes Company a key musical? Well, uh, I think that uh, there are a couple of reasons, but perhaps the most obvious is that it's almost nothing like musicals that went before it. Uh, the uh, you know the traditional musics musicals from the golden age were sort of in general happy stories, uh, love stories, things like that. And this isn't even really a story. It's more about people dealing with marriage, love, relationships, um, concerns about commitment, and that sort of thing. And it's much more a study of a topic. That's not to say it's not entertaining. In fact, it's a wildly entertaining uh, show. But uh, it is quite different uh, in that approach. Some people call it a concept musical because it deals with that kind of idea. Sondheim didn't like that description particularly, but I think it's an apt one and uh, helps people to better understand sort of the nature of the show. And um, for our listeners who might be unfamiliar, what exactly is a concept musical and how does it differ than 
I don't know, say My Fair Lady or, or Guys and Dolls, which are not considered to be concept musicals? Well, I think that in general, a concept musical is one that uh, is built around a theme rather than a particular story or a, uh, a singular character who is being presented. Uh, so it is an exploration of the theme of issues uh, and uh, that sort of thing. Do you remember the first time that you actually saw a production of Company? <laughs> I do. Um, it was a long time ago, uh, early 70s. I was uh, living on the west side of Cleveland near Baldwin Wallace College in Berea Summer Theater, which was their their, how they use their theater facility in the summertime, did a production of it. It would have been about 1972 or three. So the show was had barely been out. And I remember going to see it there and thinking, wow, this is this is really different than uh, than other shows that I had that I had seen. I was still I wasn't a theater critic yet. I was just a, an avid theater goer, but it sure seemed like something different to me. Can you tell us a little bit about where Sondheim was in terms of his career when Company emerged? Uh, just a, li a little history on where he was in his artistic career at that point. Sure. Well, when Company came out, um, he was 41 years old, so uh, still relatively young by artistic standards, I guess. But he'd already had a great start more than 10 years earlier. He worked with Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins and Arthur Lawrence to create West Side Story. Um, he had to be coaxed to do it, uh, in part because he really wanted to be a composer and a lyricist. And well, Leonard Bernstein already had that composer job lined up. So, uh, but he decided uh, with Oscar Hammerstein encouraging him uh, that this would be a great experience to work with some well-established people. Those three fellows, uh, Lawrence and Bernstein and Robbins were all uh, about 10 years older than Sondheim and already had uh, really uh, uh, excellent credentials for Broadway. So encouraged that. The next step, uh, uh, Arthur Lawrence uh, asked him if he'd be interested in working on a musical that was to star Ethel Merman. That was Gypsy. Um, Ethel didn't want an untried fellow to be her composer, and Sondheim was again disappointed, but Hammerstein said to him, you know, this is your chance to write for a star, to really learn how to craft music around a particular performer. And so Sondheim sort of grudgingly again said, all right, all right, I'll do it. And he had a ball doing it. They wrote that musical, that wonderful musical, Gypsy, with Julie Stein as the composer who she had worked with and, and cared very much for. Um, and uh, they, they had a blast putting it together. They, they, it took about three months, which is a remarkably short time for something that's considered to be one of the great classics of musical theater. Um, the next thing that he did uh, was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And that was really his opportunity to do a, uh, a show where he was both the composer and the lyricist. He worked with uh, two guys who knew how to be funny. That would be Bert Shevelov and Larry Gelbart. And uh, they took an ancient Roman comedy by, by Plautus and uh, decided to make a, a a new story with it, uh, put together a lot of very funny uh, kinds of pieces and uh, 
really worked and worked. Uh, it is a plot that has sometimes been compared to a Swiss watch. It's very complicated farce, but it just works beautifully. And uh, he wrote music for it. Now, it's interesting because it was not the kind of music uh, within a show that he had really learned about from Oscar Hammerstein, who mentored him when he was a young teen and in his early 20s. And that the music that he wrote for that was more, almost more like interludes between scenes. It was not music really written for specific characters, but it was a, it was a, a great piece of experience for him. A few more things came along over time. He and, and Lawrence did, did a show called Anyone Can Whistle, which actually uh, was kind of a flop. It was, a, a, it was almost too avant-garde for its time. It was uh, a musical about mental health and uh, political power and uh, very satirical and uh, audiences uh, just pretty well walked out on it. It, it only ran for nine performances. Um, it has uh, acquired some interest uh, in latter days because, well, Sondheim did the music for it. Um, but uh, it's a very strange story. And uh, again, I think he felt it was a learning experience, but he, he said sometimes that he and, and Arthur Lawrence, they were like the smartest kids being smart Alex in the back of the classroom when they created that show. So it didn't, didn't go over real well with audiences back, back then. Um, uh, beyond that, he did a TV musical called Evening Primrose, uh, which was uh, only about an hour long, sort of a Twilight Zone kind of story uh, that got some viewership. But of course, it was just broadcast one time. It didn't have like a long Broadway run or anything like that. And then uh, George Firth came to him with some uh, scenes that he had written. Uh, George Firth was an actor who Sondheim had met working on a, on a review back in the 60s, and they'd become friends. And Firth came forward with this. It was a series of scenes in which he had envisioned using a singular actress to play roles in each one of these, these shows. And he did a workshop of it and it just wasn't coming together. So he brought the material to Sondheim and said, what do you think? Sondheim said, well, I don't know. It's not really my cup of tea to figure out something like this, but my friend Hal Prince would be a good one to talk to about this. And that's, uh, that's the birth of company. They took it to Hal Prince. He looked at it and said, hmm, I think this could make a good musical. Now, what it evolved from bore only the slightest relationship to Firth's original little playlets, but uh, that's where it all came from. And so it seems like, if I understand correctly, that Sondheim actually started off quite successfully with very, very big successful pieces. And then right before Company, it seemed like there was a decline in terms of audience appreciation with um, Anyone Can Whistle, Do I Hear a Waltz. Was he discouraged at all by these re reactions um, or was he still interested in pursuing musical theater? Oh, he was still interested in pursuing musical theater. His disenchantment came about 10 years later when, when Merrily We Roll Along uh, was uh, another unsuccessful piece, which has subsequently actually been sort of reinvented in some very positive ways. But these shows, I mean, the first couple of things that he did, because he was only the lyricist, he was impatient to become a composer and a lyricist. Um, and I, I think he was a little miffed, particularly with West Side Story, because reviews of the show 
didn't pay much attention. The other three names on the show were big names, and he was 26 years old. And, you know, who was who this Sondheim guy? People hadn't heard from him. So there was not very much comment. Uh, more notice was made with Gypsy. The lyrics of that are such wonderful things and uh, numbers like Rose's Turn, which really is a, a sort of an example of his his um, ability to write character-driven music uh, is really a foretaste of what, uh, what came after uh, in many of his other shows. But again, he wasn't writing the music yet. So, uh, you know, and then when he and uh, Lawrence did the uh, Did Anyone Can Whistle, um, he, I, I think he was quite pleased. They were both pleased with the show. They just realized that, well, maybe the audience wasn't quite ready for a show like that. Um, through the 70s, he had ideas for things, and uh, but it just was having a hard time getting traction for them until he came along with it. And actually, this is a bit of an interesting story. He had also been working at the time that the idea for company was being kicked around, a show called The Girls Upstairs. And that show uh, is uh, is the the germ from which Follies sprung. Uh, the girls upstairs were a couple of Ziegfeld Follies girls, and uh, it was about them and their boyfriends. And uh, uh, Hal Prince was going to produce both of these, produce and direct both this and company. And Sondheim wanted him to do the girls upstairs first. And Prince said, no, I'm ready to do company. I've got ideas for people to play the roles. We've got a designer. Boris Aronson was already lined up to design. And he said, work with me, get this one done, and then I will work with you to do Follies. And so that's how that came about. But I don't think he was ever feeling disillusioned. Uh, that, that came later in his, uh, in his career. And let's talk a little bit about Hal Prince at this time. Um, can you can you walk us through a little bit about who he was and what was his career trajectory prior to company? Sure. Um, he and Sondheim had become friends in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, Prince was uh, just two or three years older than Sondheim. So they were both still pretty young guys. Uh, but when West Side Story was... Uh, in the in the pipeline being being worked on, um, they were struggling to raise funding for it. It was a show that didn't immediately take off with uh, uh, people coming forward and saying, "Oh, this is something I want to support." And uh, the producer that they had backed away after a while. And Sondheim said, "You know, I know this uh, Hal Prince." who uh, I think might be somebody who could do this. And Prince came on and became the, uh, the producer for that, helped raise money to put that on. So uh, that was uh, one of Prince's first steps into the, the theater world, uh, really in that role. He was also, and in fact, um, back in the late 40s, he did some uh, stage management and assistant direction for the legendary theater uh, director, George Abbott. And uh, that was really how he got his foot in the theater door uh, to, to do some of those kinds of things. And uh, so uh, he was also involved then as the producer for uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. So they had had some of that kind of work together. But in the, in the 60s, uh, Prince began to uh, develop uh, as a director. That was what he was really interested in, things he had learned from uh from George Abbott. And uh, so he did a couple of shows then, like 
Oak Fiddler on the Roof and uh, uh, Cabaret that were uh, shows that were you know, already pretty good things to have on your uh, on your resume. And uh, so he was already into that. But this so company was the first show that he and Sondheim did together. Uh, but then for the next decade, um, they were they were like a team. They he directed and produced uh, everything that Sondheim did um, in the in the 1970s. What do you think they gave one another that made their team so successful? What did Prince give Sondheim and what did Sondheim give Prince? You know, that, that's a that's an interesting question because they were rather different personalities and they didn't always agree about things that they were that they were doing. Um, uh, and 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 uh, Prince was a very forthrightly decisive guy in the theater. He had an idea and he was ready to go with it. And Sondheim apparently was always ready to second guess and say, well, I'm not so sure, you know, should we be doing this? Uh, and, and Sondheim was notoriously slow about writing music for shows and often sort of drove Prince crazy. I mean, I mentioned a few minutes ago about, about working on the two shows about the girls upstairs and company. Prince was impatient. He said, I'm ready to do company. Let's get that done. And then we'll turn to Follies. So there was that. There are also, there's lots of examples along the way of them um, having different ideas about things. So perhaps the best example I can offer up is, is Sweeney Todd. Sondheim wanted to do a show that would just scare the bejesus out of people. And he envisioned it as this sort of claustrophobic kind of, uh, kind of production. Prince saw it as a condemnation of industrialization on British society and made it into this immense production, which, uh, which worked very well. I mean, my gosh, they won Tony Awards for it and all of that sort of thing, but it was not exactly what Sondheim had in mind. Now, he didn't object to it. He said it was Hal's concept and it worked really well. Uh, so I think that they fed off of one another, uh, and that might be the best way to describe their relationship. What was different about Company that made it stand out from other musicals of its era? Was it the score? Was it the script? Maybe it was all of it. Can can we elaborate on that? I think uh, all of it would be uh, my my quick my quick answer. Um, the score was different. This was not a lot of uh, sort of sweet love songs and that sort of thing, which uh, were numbers that, you know, were more expected in musical theater at that time. Um, this score was sort of uh, infused with uh, sort of pop uh, rhythms and melodies some jazz kinds of, of numbers and that sort of thing that uh were were just unlike anything that people had heard before. Um, it was also uh, the first show that Sondheim did that Jonathan Tunick uh, orchestrated, and Tunick became his orchestrator for virtually all the rest of, uh, of the, the shows that he did. Uh, and so he gave the the score uh, a, a very jazzy sound. Uh, for instance, at the beginning of Company, uh, the first song has uh, uh, sort of background music that sounds like uh, uh, telephone uh, dialing and uh, the uh, clicks and beeps of an answering machine. Now, I know those are all kind of antique sounds now, but uh, you know that's they were worked into this uh, uh, initial number, and nobody had ever done things like that with the music. The lyrics uh, were. Uh, 
uh, quite interesting and different. Again, they were things that were rooted in many cases in character. The best example to give probably is um, uh, Elaine Stritch uh, played a character, Joanne in Company, who is an older woman, very cynical about uh, marriage and uh, life in general. And uh, of course, she made the song, The Ladies Who Lunch, uh, famous. And uh, uh, today, hardly anyone even reviews the show without saying, well, so-and-so sang this song very much like Elaine Stritch once did. So, uh, but Sondheim wrote that song with Stritch in mind, her voice, her the persona that she projected on stage. And uh, this was, again, something that he kind of learned when he worked with, with Ethel Merman on, in Gypsy, uh, so that that was sort of a growth from that uh, learning experience for him. But, uh, uh, you know, he had other other songs for other people. The, the song Another Hundred People uh, was actually uh, written. It's a little different number in the show. It's not so much an outgrowth of, of character per se. It's more about young people coming to New York City. But he wrote that song for a young performer uh, named Pamela Myers, who was fresh out of college. She had uh, actually taken the bus from Cincinnati and gone to New York City and went to this audition and they fell in love with her. And uh, he wrote that song with her in mind. And it's about, it's a, a fast paced number. Um, it was actually, it was in the show and then it got bumped out briefly because they were concerned that the show was running too long. And uh, Sondheim said, Pam, don't worry, we're gonna get this back in again. And like in a day or two, they had broken it up uh, with the scene uh, with the three girlfriends that Robert has, and the the uh, another hundred people uh, sort of is used uh, as interpolation and transition between each of those little scenes. So uh, again, it was very much written with Pam's voice and persona in in mind. One of the things that you had mentioned, and I think it's something we should explore, is this idea that scenes, a traditional book scenes, were being interrupted by characters who weren't even in the scenes. Um, can we talk a little bit about Prince's staging techniques and the impact and effect of sort of that Brechtian style in coming into musical theater? If Stephen Sondheim were here, he would object to you using the word Brechtian because he didn't like it. But uh, I think it's, again, I think it's an apt description for people who know what the term means. But uh, and, and for those that don't, would you be so kind as to expand a little bit on the terminology? Sure. Um, it is uh, uh, based on plays that Bertolt Brecht wrote that are, uh, they tend to be uh, somewhat satirical, ironic, and uh, uh, more uh, based in concept than character, uh, I guess would be the way that I would most quickly try to try to define it. Um, but so in, in company and the way that uh, Prince used these, so the, the, the scenes, there are five married couples who are the friends of Robert, the central character in company. And uh, each one of them has a scene in which Bob, Robert, Robbie, whatever people are calling him in that particular moment is um, uh, sort of the third wheel. And, uh, but they are not done in any particular order 
each one uh, reveals a different kind of a relationship. And, uh, you know, Prince used those. He also used the, the, uh, the wonderful set that uh, uh, Boris Aronson designed, which won Tony Award for Scenic Design that same year that the show, the show was nominated for 14 Tony Awards and won about half of those. So, uh, but the, so it won for Scenic Design. It was a, uh, it's sort of like a pile of glass and chrome boxes that were meant to make you think of people living in apartments stacked on top of one another. And uh, it had two elevators in it, and people could come up and down in the elevators and go in and out of scenes. And again, that's how Prince handled these transitions. And so many times, you know, a couple of characters would come in, uh, they would start doing something. The um, uh, a good example of, of this is that uh, uh, the song You Could Drive a, Cur a Person Crazy is sung sort of in the style of the Andrews sisters. Uh, commenting on Robert's fickleness, his unwillingness to commit to any one of his girlfriends. But it also appears uh, in this almost sort of dreamlike kind of uh, context uh, adjacent to other scenes where there are characters you know, who are putting together a little story. Can we talk a little bit about um the the scene order one of the things that people say on company is that it feels random because the the conceptual idea is more important than a traditional linear narrative um do you think that the way the scenes and songs are revealed to the audience is done in a very deliberate logistical fashion or do you think that the criticism and maybe it's not even a criticism that there's this randomness to it is actually probably more in line with what the creators were looking to go after I don't think that there uh, there is not a natural random. It's not like you could juggle the scenes around and and it would it would work. Um, there are things you know. We meet uh, all of the characters in the opening number. All of the the the, the married couples uh, learn little bits about them, and then. Um, we begin to delve into some of the relationships. There's a, a pot smoking uh, episode. Uh, there is one where the wife has been taking karate lessons and the husband is somewhat disdainful of, uh, of that. And uh, uh, she proves to him that she really has learned something throws him a couple of times. And uh, so, but again, these are sort of exploratory moments the, the, the scene that uh, uh, comes close to the end of the first act, um, however, is the song called Getting Married Today. And it's uh, the character Amy and her fiance, Paul, and it's her expressing all of her reservations about, you know, am I really going to get married? Am I, do I really want to do this? It is an incredible sort of patter song delivered at a high rate of speed, uh, tongue twisting and all of that sort of thing. The song that actually ends the act in the way that it, it is arranged now, this was not in the very original production, but it is the way that it is now. It's a song called Marry Me a Little. And uh, again, that is a progression uh, in which Robert begins to say that Maybe he would like to have a relationship, but he's not quite ready for a full commitment. So he'd like to be married a little bit. Um, in the second act, uh, the uh, uh, you know we we get some uh, bigger bigger numbers with the whole cast. Uh, there's a sort of a vaudevillian number at the beginning of the <coughs> excuse me of the second act. 
and it is, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 all the characters talking about, you know, what would we do without you? It's the the, the role that Robert plays in their lives. <clears throat> we don't get around to Joanne and her cynicism until very late in it, and then at the very end, it's when Robert. Uh, finally sits down and starts thinking about it. And it's the song Being Alive, in which he realizes that uh, uh, that loneliness is something that he can't cope with. Uh, there may be challenges with regard to commitment uh, and that sort of thing. But um, as Sondheim liked to say, marriage, marriage can be difficult, but uh, uh, to be alone is really impossible. And so that is the message that comes comes you come down to at the very end. And would you talk a little bit, please, about the shows out of town? There were there were different endings, I believe, before they settled on being alive, if I remember correctly. Um, can you talk a little bit about what other songs were in there before they settled on being alive, which is the final message of the piece? Yes, um, there were. They, they did the tryout in Boston, and there are three. The being alive was the final thing that they got. The two previous numbers both were apparently so dark uh, that uh, audiences were like kind of shocked. And in fact, some of the backers and so on said, uh, that, "That's a pretty nasty message you're conveying there." And uh, Robert, I'm sorry, but I'm not coming up with those two song titles right now. Well, wh- we know that one of them was "Multitudes of Amy." Yes. Which uh, I think, if I remember correctly, they the idea was that Amy did not get married at the end of the first act to Paul and that Robert pursued her. Um, and the end was he realized he had been in love with her the entire time. And I think they felt that was too saccharine and too traditional. Um, and then there was Happily Ever After. Uh yep. Which, uh, which I'm sure we know is very dark and very cynical. Um, I feel like "Marry Me a Little" was also in there at some point, and then they now use it for the end of Act One. But then finally, getting to being alive. But yeah. it's, hey, it's... Right. Hey, hey, I looked it up in a in a really useful book that I have here. What's My the name of that book, Rick? <laughs> that would be the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia. And you are you are absolutely right about multitudes of Amy's, and then uh, the. Uh, the, the other one was happily ever after, which was uh, the last line of it is about being happily ever after in hell. And uh, so, you know, again, it was just too dark, too dark for words and uh, uh, and too dark for audiences, apparently. And uh, then he came around to this one, which uh, I think Sondheim felt ultimately uh, was more uh, really what the message of the show was intended to be. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 
Now, let's talk a little bit about critical and audience reaction to the original production. Uh, what were the reviews like and what was the box office like? Um, very interesting. The, um, the, of course, the New York Times often sets the tone for such things, even 50 plus years ago. And uh, Clive Barnes was the lead uh, critic for the Times, and he, uh, he was pretty lukewarm about the show. He uh, felt that the, uh, the scenes were they were repetitive, and uh, um, he seemed to think the music was okay. And but he and he very curiously ended his review saying, "Well, this is a show that deserves to be seen in a rather weak season." Now, I don't know what all was around it at the time, but so he didn't say, "Don't go see it." But he was not very enthusiastic. About two weeks later, uh, Mel Gussow, who was another uh, writer for the New York Times wrote a much more enthusiastic review. Uh, and that really um, more or less set the tone for many, many of the other reviews. There were very few uh, negative reviews beyond, beyond that point. Um, Hal Prince told a story though, that um, after he read Clyde Barnes review, he thought, oh my God, we're sunk. Uh, but then somebody said, there was a big line outside the theater and they went out and he said, everybody was standing in line reading the New York Times and they were lined up around the block to buy tickets for the show. So, what, so I, what do you think accounted for that? Well, uh, I don't. I guess I don't rightly know. I think that uh, that that Clive Barnes did enough description of it that people thought, well, this sounds kind of interesting—a show about marriage, and uh, you know, there is some humor in it, and uh, well, maybe we should give this a try. And then uh, other reviews came out that were more positive and enthusiastic endorsements in the other New York papers at the time. And uh, so I guess that that, uh, you know, as things, it was pretty quickly reviewed uh, that uh, there was enough positive uh, buzz around it that people wanted to see the show. And if you saw it within the first month, I believe you got to see the original star of the show, Dean Jones. And then afterwards, Larry Kurt popped in. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about why the, the leading man yeah. of a hit musical left? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Uh, Dean Jones was, uh, his marriage was dissolving as they were rehearsing and opening the show. And, uh, it was not an easy subject to be singing, you know, eight times a week about uh, and, uh, you know, talking about the ups and downs of marriage when his own marriage was uh, on the rocks. And uh, Hal Prince went and talked to him and said, I can see you're having a hard time with this. Um, and there had been some rumblings that, that Jones might want to step out of the production. And so uh, what Prince said to him was, I will let you out of the production, uh, but please stay with it for our initial review period and for the cast recording. And then we will, uh, you know, we'll have Larry Kurt. Larry Kurt was his cover, uh, was Dean Jones's cover. So he was in a position, could easily step in for the, for the performance. Um, so Jones did it for about two weeks. They recorded the cast recording and then, and then Larry Kurt took over 
took over the role. Larry Kurt also played the role in London when the production opened up over there. And interestingly, Larry Kurt was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical uh, for that. Uh, but people remember Dean Jones uh, in part because of the original cast recording and also because of D.A. Pennebaker's film uh, that documented the, the cast recording and uh, uh, you know, we really got to see Dean Jones sing that number with incredible passion and uh, camera angles that just about let you see his tonsils while he was singing. Uh, so it's a uh, uh, it's nice to have it documented. I mean, it really he delivered the 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 ideal of that number. I think not that Larry Kurt didn't do a good job with it, but the part uh, was uh, you know Jones was really the one that they worked with now. Jones was not the person that they originally uh, envisioned. In fact, Warren Beatty was who George Firth had in mind when he was creating the role of Bobby. Uh, uh, Beatty and Firth had been uh, had gone had known one another from college, I believe. Um, but uh, Beatty wasn't a singer; wasn't somebody that they could get for that. But Anthony Perkins. Um, who people mostly remember for Psycho, uh, but he was a very uh, capable performer and he and Sondheim were very good friends. And uh, that was who they were angling to get in the first place. But Perkins had decided that he wanted to direct films and was moving off in that direction, didn't want to get tied up with a, a stage production. And that was when Dean Jones, who was mostly known for doing a couple of um, Herbie the Love Bug movies with Disney. Uh, he wasn't a well-known actor and wasn't someone who was immediately envisioned for a role like this, but took it on and, and did a great job with it, even though it was only briefly uh, on stage. Can you tell me a little bit about then after this, and you had mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the rest of the Sondheim Prince collaborations in the 1970s and what elements from company did they then expand upon um, in their future collaborations together. Um, so let me run through what those shows are so that you have a, a good picture of it. Um, the next thing after, uh, uh, after Company was Follies, uh, a, a, a much remembered extravagant production about uh, a, a theater uh, being shut down where Follies had been performed. Um, some 30, 40 years, it was set in the 70s, uh, but these were all people who had been in a Ziegfeld-like production over the years back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, and uh, two couples whose marriages uh, came out of this, they were two boys and two girls who were in the shows, um, but they are uh, uh, married now and not very happy. Uh, but that show is full of uh, what, what Sondheim called pastiche numbers, which are numbers sort of in the style of various composers from that Follies era. And uh, so, so those are some of the qualities of that show. It was a wonderful show and many people remember it, but it didn't do especially well. It was sort of a downer of a story. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, the next production uh, that they did <clears throat> I'm sorry. Let me take a swig here. No, no worries. You're you're doing all the heavy lifting for us. So, <laughs> um, the next uh, show that they did was a little night music, 
And the idea for that, or well, the inspiration for that was that they decided they wanted to do something that would be a little more, I don't know, lighthearted and uh, melodic and that people would would uh, really re in, you know, enjoy, that would have some more comic elements to it. And uh, they had originally tried to uh, talk to the playwright uh, Jean Anouy, a French playwright, about adapting one of his plays. And he was... Uh, he was dithering about whether or not they could do it. And then they moved on to other things. And uh, and then uh, Sondheim said, what about um, Ingmar Bergman's uh, film, uh, Smiles of a Summer Night? And Prince looked at that and thought, oh, that would be, that's perfect. And so that became a little night music set uh, in in Sweden in the early, very early 20th century. Uh, central character is an actress who's uh, slightly over the hill, had an affair with a man when he when they were both younger. He's now married to a very young woman and that marriage has not been consummated yet. Um, she cro They cross paths and there's a spark there, but there's a, a couple of uh, other kinds of relationships. He has a son who's actually got a crush on his young wife. Uh, there is a, 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 a fellow who is a, a very stern soldier who thinks he's having a relationship with, uh, uh, with the actress, uh, but uh, not really, not, not very profound, let's say. And then his wife, who is just another real cynical one, uh, a little bit like Joanne in, uh, in company. Um, and uh, it's all, it's this sort of mix and match kind of story and everybody ends up with somebody else than who they started with. And so it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's also a lovely show because it's full of waltz tunes. Um, the uh, one, one description of it that I've always enjoyed was that Hal Prince said that his overall concept for the show was whipped cream with knives. And uh, that's kind of, there's lots of sharpness in it. Oh, there's a, another very cynical character in it. And that's the actress's mother, uh, Madame Armfelt, uh, played by Hermione Gingold in the original production. And uh, uh, she's this sort of salty old Madame uh, who was a courtesan in her younger days. And uh, so she gives uh, another perspective on that. Um, that's an interesting show uh, since you asked about things that might've come forward. Um, it is a show about relationships and marriage and love and that kind of thing. Very different perspectives on it, but uh, again, exploring some of those kinds of things. The next show in 1976 was perhaps the most unusual of, of the shows, and that's Pacific Overtures. Um, John Weidman, who was the book writer for that, had come to Hal Prince with a play that he had written about um, uh, Commodore Perry's incursion into Japan in the 1850s to sort of open up Japan. And uh, Prince had said, well, work on this and, and we'll see. And he came back with a script that was very much like a piece of historical theater. Prince said, not quite. I think this needs to be a musical, which I think sort of surprised Weidman. But how are you going to make this a musical? Uh, but but he said, you know, I, I've been working a lot with, with Sondheim and let's, let's involve him in this conversation. Now, Sondheim said, I don't know anything about Asian music or about Japanese history, but Weidman 
educated them about that. Sondheim figured out how to write music with tonalities that sound uh, like Asian music. And uh, it's really, it's quite a fascinating show. So uh, again, uh, uh, this, this to me demonstrates how, you know, from one thing to the next, from company uh, with sort of contemporary music to follies with music from a different era to night music, which is all waltzes, and then to Pacific overtures, which is uh, a wholly different kind of music. It is uh, exemplary of how Sondheim made music and lyrics that were appropriate to the stories. Now, the next piece is the one that most people are perhaps most familiar with, and that would be Sweeney Todd. And uh, Sondheim often didn't come up with the ideas for his shows, as, as I've described here. You know, they've come from works by other people or whatever, but he saw a production of the Sweeney Todd story uh, as a play by a man named Christopher Bond in London, and he thought, I love this. He loved that this kind of, uh, you know, bloody, scary stories. And so he said, uh, I, I'd like to take this and adapt it into a musical. And there was some negotiation and Bond said, okay, we'll, I'll let you do that. He still gets a credit on the title page when people are, you know, using, having a program for the show. But uh, so they did that. And that show is uh, almost like grand opera. In fact, Sweeney Todd is often uh, produced by opera companies. It is a through sung piece like many operas. It's a tragic story. Uh, uh, just a, it's a fabulous piece of uh, continuously operated music. I mean, it has underscoring like we think of movies as having, you know, that where the music flows from one scene to another. It has a uh, uh, crazy characters. I mean, the central character is essentially a serial killer and uh, uh, and disposes of bodies by collaborating with a woman who makes meat pies, which become quite the uh, taste sensation in London. And so it's a strange story. I remember when I first heard about this, I thought, how could you possibly make a musical out of this kind of story? And yet it's uh, been a fabulous uh, fabulously successful and constantly reinvented show. And uh, it was a wonderful musical with Johnny Depp and Tim Burton directing. And so again, uh, that the next thing that they did together was uh, Merrily We Roll Along, uh, which was based on a play from the 1930s by uh, a couple of well-known playwrights back then, uh, and was, uh, they've actually very much followed the sort of the concept of it, which was to start with some uh, uh, artists who were at midlife and rather unhappy, and then sort of peeled backwards in time to find out, you know, where was the kernel of, uh, of you know, how they got started, did they, were they happy with one another, and that sort of thing. And that's basically the way the story runs backwards in time. Now, instead of the, the people that uh, were in, in the, this original play, uh, they created several people who were involved in the theater world, uh, a man who was a composer and a playwright uh, uh, who they were, were working together on things and uh, ended up rather unhappily uh, moving in different directions. One, one found fame and one uh, was too much of a serious dramatist to want to do some of the things that uh, the composer wanted to do. Um, that show, uh, and this is a, perhaps another example of Sondheim and Prince and their working relationship. Um, 
Prince got this idea in part because uh, his wife thought that he should do a show with young people in it. And in fact, he cast the show with almost totally unexperienced young, young adults, almost some were teenagers and some were young adults. Very few people had done any kind of professional theater work and uh, they were okay playing the young parts, but when, the, uh, when they were playing the characters at an older age, they kind of looked like kids you know, doing dress up. And uh, a lot of it didn't work. Uh, uh, Prince ultimately said that he never quite got his arms around uh, the concept for it. I mean, they did crazy things like they were having a hard time sorting out who characters were. So they gave everybody sweatshirts with their character's name or their role, like, uh, you know, best friend or something like that on it. And, uh, audiences just did not like it. Prince felt bad about that because he felt that, and rightly so, that Sondheim wrote a fabulous score for this. It's got a great overture, lots of great songs in it, but uh, the show only lasted for 16 performances. It did have a cast recording made, which gave it a life beyond. And in fact, that show, George Firth worked with him, wrote the script for that. Uh, and uh, uh, so that was a chance for Firth and uh, Sondheim to work together again. They'd been very uh, productive and successful with company. And so uh, they did that. And they, in fact, uh, in the 80s, after the, the show failed in the, in the very early 80s, uh, they went back and did it again and did some rework on it and changed some things around and felt that they had done a better uh, done done a better job with it, and that's the, pretty much the version of the show as it's done now. Not quite the the original, um, but that that parting of the concepts between Prince and Sondheim sort of marked uh, the end of an era for 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 Sondheim. They did not do any work together again for more than twenty years. Uh, it wasn't the end of a friendship, but I think that they both felt that maybe they had sort of exhausted their creative uh, partnership. Uh, and uh, and it was at that point that Sondheim then uh, began to work with James Lapine and did a couple of more pretty good shows, uh, Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park with George came out of that uh, out of that collaboration later. But uh, so that's sort of the, the course of what happened. But the 70s were this period of incredible creativity and success. Now, I, I it, success is a relative term. None of these shows were tremendously long running shows. Uh, I mean, obviously, a couple of them had very short runs. But uh, almost all of them have been revived uh, more than once. And uh, Sondheim often said that uh, people, you know, his shows were not shows that were always easy to grasp the first time around, but you watched it, maybe you got the cast recording, you listened to it, you got to know the music better, you saw a revival of it, and suddenly, oh, this is kind of a genius show, you know? And so, uh, but it, it was an, a, more of an acquired taste. Do you think that's a healthy thing for a musical to have where it does take repeated listenings or viewings to understand it? Or should you be able to understand and appreciate a story right from the first um, observation of it? 
Well, I, I'm going to give you my personal <laughs> response to that, and that is that I much prefer a show that requires some uh, intellectual response and isn't just a, oh, ha ha, this was fun. What a lovely story. I mean, there are plenty of musicals like that, and, you know, and I enjoy seeing those too. But the Sondheim's shows, he was, had really moved uh, the, the world of theater in a wholly new direction, uh, subject matter that nobody in the past would have even wildly imagined could be could be a show. I mean, we look at a couple of things that came up rather quickly after that, a chorus line, for instance, and the, there's a, 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 a uh, an ancestral line that runs through that. Michael Bennett, who, who created uh, Chorus Line, uh, was the choreographer for Company and for Follies, uh, very much shaped by those shows. And if you think about a chorus line, it is full of vignettes and songs, rather like Company. So that was, it was in some ways a conceptual inspiration uh, for that show. Or look at uh, another couple of years later at at Rent, a, a, a musical about people who are drug addicts and that sort of thing, uh, different kind of material. Sondheim opened the door for all of those kinds of things. I even like to hold up the example of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is a pretty out there kind of show uh, uh, about a transgendered fellow who has a botched sex change operation and so on. Uh, and it uses uh, pretty much hard rock kind of music, but is that all that different, uh, at least at a fundamental level, from Sondheim shows about unusual topics and using music that is appropriate? So he opened the doors. And then you can even come up to much more modern times and look at shows like Next to Normal uh, with a, uh, you know, about, about a woman who is uh, uh, dealing with schizophrenia or Dear Evan Hansen, uh, which deals with, uh, you know, the impact of social media and that sorts of things. I mean, what, what Sondheim did, I think, is open the door wide, wide open for treating any kind of thing seriously in musical theater. You know, we used to call the genre musical comedy. Well, you couldn't call most of what Sondheim did musical comedy. It was musical theater. And I would be remiss in our last few minutes together not to ask you about uh, the current production of Company that's playing as we're recording this in 2021, um, which has changed the main story a little bit. Um, are you able to talk about that at all? A little bit. I have not seen it yet, but I've uh, paid plenty of attention to it. And you said we are recording in 2021 and it is 2022. So, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That, that just shows you where my mind is. Uh, well, yes. We're all sort of stuck in the past, aren't we? So. We are. Rick is absolutely right. This is 2022. I'm sorry. Cont continue so, on, please. I so let me give you the chronology on this one in, uh, uh, about 2017, the British director, Marianne Elliott, approached Sondheim with an idea. Now, Marianne Elliott has done a couple of shows that uh, people will have heard of, uh, War Horse being one, and um, uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Uh, but those are, you know, dramatic plays. They're not, uh, not musicals. But she came to Sondheim and said, I have this idea about doing company, but flipping the gender of the central character of Robert, uh, the the thirty five year old bachelor who is uh, uh, feeling somewhat allergic to the idea of commitment. 
And uh, she said, I'd like to flip the gender. We'd call the character Bobby. Maybe her name is Roberta. And uh, we will look at it from a female perspective. Sondheim had been, Sondheim was often willing to let people do things with his shows, like John Doyle's productions of Sweeney Todd and company with the actors who also played music. So Sondheim was, was always willing to find, you know, to say, okay, let's give this a new look. Um, he was reticent with company because he had had people approach him about doing all male productions. And he was uh, concerned because several of them wanted to make Bobby's character uh, more overtly uh, or overtly homosexual. And he said, he's, he's not, Bobby's not gay. That's not the, not the issue. That's not what is holding him back from relationships. But he said to Marianne Elliott, let's, let's give this a shot. I, you know, let's see. So do a workshop and uh, we'll see. So workshop happened, sometimes saw it, loved it thought it was great. It raised issues of a woman in her mid-30s who's dealing with, you know, more, com more complex issues such as having a child and that sort of thing, all uh, issues that you want to think about uh, that were different, certainly different in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, so it made it uh, much more pertinent to the, this moment in time. That show uh, ran in London, won Olivier, you know, the Tony Awards in London, the Olivier's, won awards there. Patti LuPone uh, came and played the Joanne character, the Elaine Stritch character uh, in it, and uh, did very well. Uh, often happens with uh, success in London is that it gets carted across the uh, across the pond to, to New York City and Broadway, and uh, it was being put together in early 2020. And uh, in fact, it was due to open on Sondheim's birthday on March 22nd in uh, 2020. And uh, for those of you listening who have some recollection of how calendars work, you will recall that about a week before that, all of Broadway shut down. So that show kind of went into uh, hibernation. Uh, most of the cast stayed with it. It came back together again. They began rehearsing for it again in the fall of 21, and it opened up early in 2022 and is doing very well on Broadway right now. Uh, in addition to switching the gender of uh, Robert to Bobby, uh, several other, one of the, one of the uh, married couples uh, is, is a gay couple. And uh, also instead of the three uh, girlfriends, there are three boyfriends now. So uh, there, and, and Sondheim worked closely to do what kind of modest lyric changes were needed uh, to make these, uh, these revisions possible. He was very, very approving of it. And uh, I suppose that some of your listeners know that Mr. Sondheim passed away uh, last, late last November, but he had seen uh, a preview of the show and uh, was telling people, I just love this. This is this, it works so beautifully. So uh, if you haven't seen it yet, it's still on stage. I'm sure it's going to get some Tony nominations. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, it will have some Tony nominations. And uh, uh, it's a great opportunity to see a show that has a really fascinating history and has had an impact. It is indeed a key musical. 
Uh, and we're going to end on that. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. And friends, please make sure to pick up a copy of Rick's book, The Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia. It's quite fantastic. Uh, and while you're doing that, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about company, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert W. Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.